What's up, everyone? This is episode 117 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I want to start today's episode off by saying that I'm very pleased by something that happened this weekend, this past weekend, um, or didn't happen, depending on how you look at it. On Sunday night, Knicks guard Alec Burks dropped 27 points in a playoff game in Madison Square Garden. He has a rookie in 2012 Prism. He hasn't had any huge moments the last two years, so his cards were still in junk boxes. So all of the pieces were there that made this a real enticing trap. And for the most part, people stayed level-headed. I'm proud of you, basketball hobby. You're growing up. And, you know, maybe you're listening today and you got burnt on guys like Kyle Guy or THT or TJ Warren. And that was your tuition cost. Well, hopefully you didn't make that mistake again. And hopefully you feel good about the experience and the knowledge that you've gained. And hopefully you're looking at the people that told you to buy those players and you're spitting in their faces, metaphorically speaking, of course. But that could be the next step. You know, have you ever watched old westerns where the um, snake oil salesman rolls his wagon into town? What happens when Chuck Connors saves the day and, and the curtain's pulled back? The bad guy loads up his wagon and heads to another town. Send these people to other towns. As far as the playoffs go, though, um, I think this is shaping up to be a very entertaining first round. Um, The Knicks-Hawk game that I just referred to was incredible. The Lakers dropped game one to the Suns and then evened it up. Um, Despite what the seedings say and despite, you know, what logic tells you, I still view the Suns as underdogs. And... You know, that's not a diss on the Suns, by the way. I don't want people to get upset by that. Um, I'm not trying to disrespect them. I just, there's a lot of factors working against them. Um, Now, I think Milwaukee is incredibly fortunate to have won a couple games early on against the Heat. And that's, um, you know, a horrible matchup for the Bucs. And and Giannis was looking kind of shaky in game one. We've got Dallas's up two games. There's all sorts of um, interesting storylines right now. But I'm going to save any further playoff chatter for another episode, and I'm hoping to grab someone that a lot of you know that's active in the hobby community but has never been on a podcast before. I'm working out the details with that person right now. It might even be next week. Hopefully his team is still in by then, Um, and we'll definitely talk about them some. But in the meantime, I've got a jam-packed show for you today. I'm going to skip talking about my recent mail. Don't worry, I can just save the best of those cards for another week. Um, I want to use that time instead for your questions. Last weekend, I asked people to submit any questions they wanted me to tackle. And for the first time ever, I was able to get to every one of them. Even the troll questions that my friends sent in. So you'll want to make sure to stick around for that. Uh, but before I get there, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. You know, people all the time say, hey, I love the show. I love the show. What can I do to help you out? Um, it's very simple. You can go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com 
you're going to be doing eBay shopping anyway, so click on that eBay logo or click on that Fanatics logo. Maybe you're going to buy a, a shirt or something. Click on one of those. Do your shopping there. doesn't cost you anything extra. I get a small cut from that. It's a win-win. So once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo. And now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so today I am very excited to be able to share with you the fourth installment of the listener mailbag. And the majority of today's questions fit into three main categories. That would be my collection, general card knowledge, and market trends. So I'm going to address them in that order. So um, let's just start you know, with question number one here. It comes from a user named Fourth Floor Cards. And they ask me, where is most of your excitement coming from in the hobby recently? Well, um, I would say I'm most excited about the card show scene opening back up again. And that might sound weird considering that shows have been steady here in Florida, which, you know, you guys know that's where I'm at, since July. But this whole time I've had people telling me, I wish we had shows in my state. You know, I wish I could go to card shows. Well, now you can and people are traveling to big shows, new shows are opening up, all the, th- the things that I've tried to recap for you guys as best as I can, these people, you know, you guys are experiencing for yourselves in person. And some people haven't been to shows in over a year. Some people have never been to a card show in general. So we get to share in their excitement before they go. We get updates while they're there. Um, and we get the recaps, which I particularly enjoy. You know, it's, it's kind of like when multiple people witness a car crash uh, without all the destruction, usually. What I mean is this, that the people who saw the crash, they might agree on the major details. The blue car hit the red car, right? But their perspective or their viewpoint on everything else might be completely different. So I've enjoyed hearing about Miami, in Wisconsin, in Dallas... A lot of the big details were the same, you know, what kind of cards were at most tables, what cards were people asking for, and so on and so on. But the personal stories, the photos of the meetups, and the trade nights, all that kind of stuff has been fantastic, and it has me itching to go to more shows, even though I've had pretty good access as it is. So that's what gets me excited right now. Next question comes from Level Up Cards. He says, I'm curious to know approximately what percentage of your spending goes towards your PC and what percentage goes towards cards you're investing in or reselling. I'd say it's close to 50-50 for me where it should be skewed more toward the investment cards. There's just too many cool cards I want for the PC. Okay, well, uh, I'm not sure if I can come up with a number here. If I had to, I'd say it's 50% collection, 30% reselling. Um, And I'm not a math teacher, but I know that leaves me with another 20%. So I'm going to create a third category for experience cost. And sometimes there's overlap with all three. So for example, a lot of the lots that I've been buying would start under that third category. Some of you, you might have seen the Goodwill lot that I posted on my YouTube. Um, I just saw a bunch of 2009 cards. I thought they'd be fun to go through. It cost me the equivalent of two blasters. Well... It was a lot of fun to go through, but I also, there were some nice things in there, and I ended up selling a couple of the cards to fund a PC purchase, so you kind of got all three categories there, so I'm not sure how you would categorize all of that spending, 
Um, now, prior to 2019, I'd say it was 80 or 90% PC and the rest was reselling. But um, like everyone else, I've had to adapt. Um, now, I do want to take one statement from your question, though, and address that before I move on. You said, I'd say it's close to 50-50 for me where it should be skewed more toward the investment cards. My follow-up to that would be, you know, why? Why should it be more skewed toward the investment cards? You know, who's determining that? If your goal is to make money, then that might be true. But if your goal is to collect, you know, you could put $0 toward investment cards and it would still be all right. Obviously, that PC money has to come from somewhere, but you can budget for that. Um, you know, I know in a lot of cases, the investing portion is just a means to an end, but nothing says you have to invest in or make money off this hobby and I've got a few $40 Solomon Hill purchases that I happen to really enjoy that could help drive that point home. I'm not getting $40 out of those ever again if I decide to move them. They're not worth anything close to that now, but I'm very happy to have them in my collection. All right, next question um, is probably the first troll question. Thank you, Jason, a.k.a. Small Town Cards. He said... Are you starting to save your pennies for next season to buy up whichever center the Pacers draft with their lottery pick? Okay, so Jason, um, Jason hit a nerve here because he knows I'm I'm just disgusted with the Pacers drafting, um, and and um, it hurts because this question is true. So for whatever reason, the Pacers are fixated on drafting big men and six foot guards, right? So go back, look at 2017. You got TJ Leaf, you got EK Anabogu, 2018 Aaron Holiday, 2019 Goga. You know, and you can go back further in time than that. You get guys like Joe Young. Um, and then 2020, they they only had a second round draft pick and they grabbed Cassius Stanley from Duke. Now, I will say though, out of all years to draft a second rounder that won't get many cards, I'm glad it was this one. Because I'm I'm not really interested in grabbing Cassius Stanley cards. And I'm certainly not interested in grabbing relics that weren't even worn. I don't need props. So um, as far as this next year goes, I hope the Pacers choose wisely. I hope we've moved out of the invest era, we as in the hobby, so I can afford this player. The Goga prices at one point were just stupid. Um, And I hope Panini's moved on from the props. But yes, I'm saving my pennies. Yes, I pick them up off the ground when I see them, even during the COVID era. Next question comes from GS Sports 33. They said, you might have touched on this previously, but how do you and others display your cards? Most of our cardboard is tucked away um, in boxes and binders, but some deserve to be shown. Outside of the little plastic stand on the desk, I personally haven't found anything I really like. Well, I can't speak a lot for others, although I've seen some really cool threads on Blowout where people show off their hobby rooms. Um, A lot of people even have like, I wouldn't say a lot, but some people have these glass cabinets and cases like you'd find at a card shop. It's really heavy duty. Um, And I've seen people that use a pretty cheap glass tower display case that you can find at Ikea. I've thought about that as well. But um, a lot of these are people that have really nice finished basements, and that's not something we do here in Florida. So I don't have that. In fact, I don't display much of anything when it comes to cards because I'm scared of them fading or falling or um, getting chewed on by a cat or something weird happening like that. I do still have plenty of sports stuff out and on shelves, but it's more like McFarlane figures, 
tickets of events I've been to, pictures from games, bobbleheads, that kind of stuff. So um, the few cards that I do have out for display are all low-end stuff. It's stuff that I like. It's stuff that I usually have doubles of. And um, to remedy this, you know, because we like looking at our cards, I, I've talked about this a little, but I've tried to move more to binders in the last couple of years because it's just not convenient to flip through stuff in boxes. And it's a good way to lose track of stuff too. So I've mentioned the leather Z folios on here before. I think those are great. They usually cost in the $25 to $30 range. I like the fact that they zip up. And um, it also allows me to free up some top loaders. Because usually if I'm putting something in there, it's coming out of a top loader. Uh, the only major downside is you can't see the backs of card, which bothers a lot of people. Um, I do for vintage, you know, it's nice to be able to read the back especially. So... Those of you that are listening, maybe you have some great methods that you use that you'd be willing to share. Post those up on social media and tag me so I can see them. And then maybe I can pass those along as well. All right, next question comes from Clips and Vols. He's been on the show before. He is a fellow Kyle. He said, is Paul George your favorite player still? Is Paul George my favorite player still? Who? PG-13 or soon to be PG-0-3. Next question, Timmy.Amos said, do you personally consolidate cards to get a higher price, rarer card? For example, would you rather have 50 nice Danny Granger cards or two or three amazing cards? And I actually just bought a Danny Granger card last night. I can't wait to talk about in a future mail segment. The short answer, though, is that I'd rather have two or three amazing cards, which sometimes turns into five or six. Like, I've got enough good Danny Granger stuff, but when I see something I like, I do kind of still grab it. Um, I've tried to adjust my strategy from the start, especially when it's guys that the Pacers are just now drafting. So I never really have to go through the consolidation phase. Um, For example, I talked about Goga not too long ago here, Goga Bataze. Heading into this year, I knew what kind of stuff I'd want from him, or heading into his rookie year, which I guess was two years ago. I wanted a nameplate. I wanted a nice jumbo patch. I wanted a draft night auto. I wanted a gold of some type, which I still don't have. But um, I knew the majority of that stuff would come out later in the season, so I just had to be patient. That meant not buying every little chopped up patch or every piece of a sock in absolute. Um, Even though I was watching him play and I wanted to add something, said, I got to get some Goga cards, but I knew the good stuff would come later on. And that saved me the hassle of, you know, having to move all that little stuff that people probably wouldn't be too interested in anyway. Um, Now, one more example, this past weekend, we talk about guys that are already drafted. Um, This past weekend, a friend sent me a listing with a nice Sabonis patch, number to 10 out of Prism. Real nice looking card. It's a, uh, I was about to say refractor. We all, that's copyrighted by Tops, right? So it um, was a silver, right? And, or a prism, you know, whatever you want to call it. So we know, though, that the patch windows on those are kind of small. Um, so, you know, even if the price was right, I told him I'd probably pass because I already have a Sabonis nameplate and a jumbo number patch. So, you know, I try to try to get a couple real nice things, and then that allows me to be more comfortable passing on a lot of the other stuff. So unless something really blows me away, I'm done with Sabonis patches for now. So, And I'm sure something else will come out, but I, I feel like I'm done for right now until something unique comes out. Now, the third thing I'll add um, 
coming back to Danny Granger is, you know, if something big comes up or like something rare, like I just bought, um, I'd rather try and move some of my show inventory or trade cards so I don't have to make any big sacrifices for the PC. Really, I would rather just pay for it because if it's something rare, I don't like giving up rare cards for other rare cards when I can just buy cash. I'm sorry, when I can just buy with cash. I wish I could buy cash. Um, you know, because, um, you know, I'm trying to think how to phrase this best, but um, cash is not infinite for me. However, cash, you know, I can work extra time at work and, and earn more cash, whereas I can't work extra time at work and earn a rare Danny Granger out of nowhere. So it's, I'd rather just buy stuff if possible. I don't want to give up an asset that took money and time to track down. I'd rather just buy it outright. All right, next question comes from Connell underscore collection. He said, which Dwayne Wade jersey do you wear around the house but never out in public? Um, I don't actually wear shop rags. I try to keep those in the garage for when I need them. Next question comes from Julian. I talked about on here before is at SkyBTC. Made a trade with him before. He said, what is your experience with international collectors and what is your take on the international basketball card market? Well, I would say that my experience with international collectors is different from U.S. collectors in the sense that I, you know, I haven't really got to interact with a lot of international collectors in person, save for a handful of people at the 2019 National, which, hey, just a quick plug for the National, that's another reason why the National is so cool. You meet people from all over the world, but um, now, my online interactions with international collectors have gone really well. In in general, I find them to be a very passionate group of collectors. Um, and, you know, for some of these collectors, English is not their first language, and they've gone to great lengths to um, become a contributing part to a largely English-speaking crowd. So those of you out there, if you fall under that category, I don't want that to be... I don't want that to go unnoticed. I appreciate that, and, and I hope the rest of the hobby does as well. I don't want to speak for them, but I think they do. And Now, I bought from international collectors on eBay. I don't mind doing so one bit. I, you know, I don't mind waiting for cards. Um, I don't trade a lot in general, but I've made a deal with the collector in Taiwan. And then, of course, I made one with the person that asked this question. And in both cases, the communication was really good. And, you know, I tried not to get freaked out when things take a little while. You know, I, I know that's going to happen. Um, as far as the international card market goes, I can only rely on the things I hear. I don't have a good pulse on it, and I don't want to pretend like I do. Um, now I know the global market was a major driving force in awarding Panini that exclusive basketball license. I think that speaks quite a bit to the international scene. But beyond that, I can't tell you much. I, I wish I could give you more. And that might be another good point for um, some more knowledgeable listeners to weigh in on. Okay, so let's move into the card knowledge portion of the podcast. The first question, I don't know how to say this name, so I'm just going to spell it. P-A-E-L-Z-U-N-I-G-A. I'm not going to try that one. Um, they said, what are the inserts that you must chase in 2000-2010 era that you can get on the usual low to mid in packs? Um, all right, so they said that you must chase. I don't, you know, I don't, that's a tricky one to kind of interpret how, you know, how to approach that. 
I'll be honest, I'm not much of an insert guy. And even opening anything from that era is pretty pricey now. But um, I tell you what I'll do here. I'm going to name a low-end insert from each of the four major manufacturers in that era that I like and ones that I think are easy to track down, at least on the secondary market. So the first one we'll go with Tops is 2002-2003. Tops Coast to Coast, which there's also a version in Chrome, and then there was a refractor version. It has road signs in the background. It still has a bit of a 90s feel to me, so I like that. Uh, as far as FLIR, I would say 2004-2005 FLIR Ultra Scoring Kings. These are horizontal, like silver cards, but not metallic. It's just silver. They have a kind of a, I don't know if transparent is the right word, headshot on one side, and then it's paired with a full color image of the player next to it. It's a lot different than the older Scoring Kings, but it has a very classy feel to it. Um, another really cool one is, uh, and I know this all skews towards the early, I guess, the early 2000s, but um, 2004-2005 Upper Deck Flight Team, and um, there's there were some parallels to that. There was Flight Team Rainbow, and then there's an Onyx parallel. But um, the Flight Team, they have like a blue refractor-like surface to them, even though it's more of a paper card. And um, there's a couple of rare parallels, like I mentioned, that you can chase... The rainbow parallel is unnumbered, but it was something like one in every 1,000 packs. And then the onyx parallel is numbered to the player's jersey number. So that, you know, for some players, that means, you know, it was a one of one or, or really low numbered. Um, now, you said 2000 to 2010, so that doesn't give a lot of options for Panini, but that's okay because there is one from that time frame that I really like, and it's one that continued for a while. Uh, with their products. That's the 2009-2010 threads, team threads, die cuts. Um, some people don't like these because it doesn't have a picture of the player on it, but it's it's a die cut that's shaped like the jersey. They're on like a canvas-like material like the Court Kings base cards used to be, and they might still be. And, um, you know, it's something different. They made them for a number of years. I believe they stopped the die cut with the 2018 release. But um, anyway... Like I said, I'm not a big insert guy, but I hope that answer doesn't disappoint. Next question comes from Bob824Cards. Um, shout out to Bob. He's always commenting on my stuff. He's very engaged with everything that I post, so thank you, Bob. Um, he said, what's the definition of an uncirculated card? If it means what I think it does, then should the term be applied to Panini one-in-one products? I believe the term may have more use than PSA ready. Um, I got a good laugh out of that last part. So when I got really serious about cards again in the early 2000s, the term uncirculated card referred to cards that came sealed in cases and they were um, usually direct from the manufacturer or they were in like a special pack um, in the box. And uh, it was a lot more common with Tops than it was either of the other two manufacturers. And I've talked about the 2003 Tops Chrome X-Fractors, which that's one that was in its own special pack in the box. And I think a lot of the finest and pristine sets had uncirculated cards as well. So by that definition, yes, I suppose you would have to call some of the flawless and the one-in-one -one cards uncirculated as well. Now, uh, as far as the PSA ready um, phrase that you mentioned, or you really, you alluded to the fact that it's useless. I couldn't agree more. 
I think I've posted about this on social media before, PSA will grade or authenticate practically any card. So when a seller says PSA ready, well, yeah, every card is technically. They're trying to trick you into thinking it's going to grade well, but technically a crumpled up card is PSA ready. So, hey, maybe they could at least put it in a card saver one for you, right? Next question comes from Hoops Cards and More 91. I'm going to guess that's a Rodman fan here, or they were born in 91, either one of those. Um, They said, what's your favorite vintage or retro style sets in the modern era? I like this question. If I remember correctly, I recall you saying in an episode that these struggled to take off. If so, why do you think that is? Um, I'm just going to tell you right now, this question led to me emailing someone from Tops. Um, now, do I think it will materialize into anything? No. Am I going to try? Of course I am. But let me back things up a little bit. So, um, uh, first off, it's an easy choice for me because I really like the 2000-2001 Tops Heritage set, which is based off of the 71-72 design. And the 71 set was the first year the Pacers were included in a top set. They had bright pink backgrounds. Well, then, so did the 2000 version, which was really cool. I could put them in a binder together. I could display them together. Um, A couple of other cool things I like about this set. The rookies are serial numbered to 1972. A lot of them have their jerseys on backwards, which that was an intentional hat tip to the older set where they didn't have the rights to show a lot of the team names. And then there's a sneaky rare chrome parallel called a retrofractor, which those are numbered to 272 for veterans and 72 for rookies, at least for the players that had them. And I want to thank Jeff, a.k.a. Kukoc ITB, for showing me those. I didn't remember those at all from when the product came out. Of course, I was you know a lot younger then, and um, he told me about those at some point during the last year when we were chatting, and um, I got my eye out now. So... As far as why they didn't catch on, though, this is nothing more than just a theory, but I think a lot of people had already established what they were going to collect. They had already picked their lane. The older guys wanted the players that they watched long ago, maybe when they were growing up, so they went with vintage. The newer generation at the time wanted the guys that showed up on their TV screens on any given night. So, um, you know, in fact, I hadn't really discovered vintage yet, so I fell into that second group. The set didn't appeal to me then. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of overlap between vintage and modern. Trying to combine those two worlds probably wasn't ideal. But with the 75th anniversary of the league coming up and a recent surge in vintage cards, I think it could be time to try something like that again. The only problem is Panini has the license, and they didn't make cards back then. There's no retro set that they can um, mirror. Well, if anyone's poised to do something with this, I think it would be tops. In fact, I think that they could use history to their advantage. Remember I said they didn't have the rights to a lot of the team logos in the early 70s? Well, guess what? They don't have them now. So have the players spin those jerseys around again. Um, cut, you know, Crop out that little NBA logo. That won't be hard. Just like that, you have a retro release that's legal and makes sense. P.S. Next season is also the 50th anniversary of the 71-72 set. Tops, I emailed you. Call me. Okay, next question comes from Dar's 90s Cards. Um, He said, Arena Design 
teased lately on the For the Hobby podcast that they're that they'd be returning to card design. Do you think there's a chance that this will not apply to basketball due to the Panini monopoly? So when I first saw this question, I I basically responded saying, you know, I don't I'm not really able to weigh in on that because, you know, I don't want to speak for arena design. So um, the question then was modified a little bit. They said, um, just curious if you think that would be an obstacle in itself. Part of me hopes since Panini has been dipping their toes into more 90s style themes and inserts that it bodes well for them being utilized. Well, you might remember my interview with Alan Siegel where he told me that no one ever asked him to do anything with basketball cards. I thought that was pretty remarkable, considering that he designed the NBA logo. Likewise, with the renewed interest in 90s cards and retro designs, it'd be pretty cool if Panini commissioned Arena at some point, even if it's just a one-off. But I just don't have a lot of faith in Panini to do something like that right now. They've been printing money for the last two seasons, and they know it. They know they don't have to do a lot of new interesting stuff and as I said last week people are buying anything and everything and it doesn't matter if it's a bad product or not now I hope I'm wrong in this instance and I'd be happy to say so if they've asked arena to partner for something and and they end up doing it that'd be awesome but um you know who knows with that being said we've seen some player licensed cards come out from guys like Tyson Beck Um, I'm not really into that kind of stuff but I think it proves that there might be a market for it if it's not overdone. Either way, though, I'm happy to see that Arena is teasing a return of some sort, and I hope it ends up being more than a tease. Okay, um, here we go into the third section of questions, which deals with, uh, I would say, market and trends and maybe even hobby future. So the I've actually got two quick questions here from the same person. That dude, Lucas... Um, he said, what, if any, content creators do you think have hobby influence? Well, I'm going to just say here, I think every person that has a social media profile for their cards, every person that posts a card, number one, that makes them a creator, number two, they have some level of hobby influence. As far as the people who have the most, you know, I think YouTube plays a bigger role than something like Instagram or Twitter. Search sports cards on there, and the first few people you see probably get the most eyeballs. All those algorithms seem to be pretty accurate. Um, So they have influence, but just keep in mind, influence can go both ways. Um, Second question, he said, if you were to pick any three or five players across all sports to invest in right now, who would they be? Let's stick with basketball. Kyle Guy, Taylor Horton Tucker and bowl bowl don't actually buy these okay next question comes from mc basketball pc he said as a collector how are you taking the most advantage during the market correction are you getting your usual stuff cheaper at all or are you going after different things that have been overpriced recently well i'd love to be able to say i'm getting my usual stuff cheaper but i'm not Uh, I'm pretty picky about what I pick up right now. It's not stuff that's super liquid. And I am, however, a willing buyer if the right pieces show up. I'm kind of hoping that, you know, a lot of people are out there are are dumping some of their liquid stuff. They're panic selling. 
all the flagship rookies, that kind of stuff. I hope they mix in some stuff that isn't as easy to find, and some of that slips through as well. Um, I know there's been some monster cards showing up on Golden and Heritage. I don't think that's panic selling as much as it is just maximizing a price while the cards are hot. But, um, you know, cards are surfacing now that we haven't seen in years. But not really the guys that I'm looking for, like Danny Granger, Reggie Miller, and Ron Artest. They're, they're not quite on that same level. Okay, the next three questions kind of go together, so I'm going to read through all of them and then try to address them at the same time. Um, the first one comes from, I think it's one ill 510 It says, what do you think or have seen already will happen to prices for vintage and modern now that crypto has been falling off a cliff for the last week or so? Then we've got Dre87113. He said, is there a dominant reason for the timing of the sports card market pullback correction? Is it a combination of a resurgent Pokemon or Bitcoin market, new NFT or fractional ownership market, or a shift in consumer dollars to travel and other events not available during quarantine? And then the last one comes from a Twitter user, Akeem's Dream 94 says, in your opinion, does PSA reopening in full capacity, and hopefully with more palatable return times, restore the hobby in terms of money flow? Or is the market doomed without easily accessible and affordable wax? Okay, a lot of stuff there. Although, like I said, I think it it all kind of goes together. So I want to try to address it as one. So uh, let me start off with the crypto portion. I know some people are taking crypto as payment. Um, the rip gods have been doing that for a long time. You know, nothing new here. I know it's popular right now. But I've just never seen a true correlation between the two markets. And I know there are probably people that are going to disagree with me there. But just because two things go down at the same time doesn't mean that they're dependent on one another. It could just be that there are other normal places to spend money now. I'll come back to that in a second. The second question asks if there's a dominant reason for the pullback or correction. And I don't think Pokemon or Bitcoin are big factors. Um, I think NFT and fractional ownership could possibly factor in, but I don't think that influence is going to be huge. Uh, in fact, I think the fractional stuff could have inflated things for a little bit, and I've, I've talked about that before. Um, now, if you remember, all the way back in October, I did an episode that summarized the perfect storm that occurred with the card market in 2019 and 2020. Is that It was episode 84, titled ESPN Card Article, The Market Cools. We had a little dip then, and I said it looked like a market correction. I felt like that was representative of a shift that was coming our way. And people seemed offended when anyone mentioned the possibility of said correction. Um, I think Brian Gray from Leaf even replied to my summary on Twitter and said something to the effect of, The market is fine if you're interested in hearing the perspective of someone that's spending a lot on cards right now and is actually active in the market, let me know. I can't find that tweet now, but I think they might have even thrown out an amount as well. But either way, nah, I'm good. I think what Sir Topham Hat was trying to imply here was that I can't understand what's going on because I'm not dro- dropping copious amounts of cash. Um, well, you don't have to participate in a car crash to understand how it plays out. In fact, sometimes you have a lot better perspective if you view it from your spot on the side of the road And you're not one of the people that's at the wheel. But I digress. Um, 
episode 84 summarized the events that led up to that point. And as I was preparing for this question, I jumped in my DeLorean and I pulled up my show notes. So here are a few things I had typed up. And remember, this was back in October. I said, are we due for an even bigger correction in the long run and what all would that involve? I also said, I think in a way it could involve an almost symmetrical unraveling of everything that got us to this point. It would be a lot of the stuff described in the ESPN article I talked about earlier being undone. People have other places to spend their money once again. Uh, now, the side note here, this isn't wasn't in my show notes, but think how many people are dipping into their card budgets to fly out to some of these big shows and to fly to national. That money went straight to cards last year. Now, here's one more thing, uh, one more note from that outline. I said, um, grading is what got a lot of people um, in now, but now they're stuck waiting a long time and these people have thousands of dollars tied up in cards that aren't in their hands and that they can't sell, in quotes. Um, I've, I've also said many times along the way, if PSA ever gets things straightened out and they're efficient, it's going to be absolutely fantastic but fantastic in the sense that things stabilize and normalize a bit. Fantastic in the sense that the hobby is set up to be healthy in the long term. Um, I know a lot of people have wanted PSA to get faster, and for some people I've told them, be careful what you wish for. Because if PSA was your cash cow for base cards, the party's over. The ship has sailed. That doesn't mean you can't make money on them still. Probably not as much as you were. Um, and when people can't make money with base cards like they used to, the price of wax will eventually fall. And when the price of wax falls, the flippers will taper off, and so on and so on. It's all a chain reaction. It just takes time. And for what it's worth, I think PSA shutting down put us in the early stages of that process. I'm very thankful for that happening. Now, the question was, does that restore the hobby in terms of, of money flow? Uh, well, I don't know um, if as much money will be rolling through, but I think it could open the door for a steady, sustainable flow for a longer period of time. Long-term hobby health is what we should all be working towards, and we all play a little part. Okay, that segues into the final question, which comes from KPB Cards. He's asking about an account that has played their part in making the money flow. He said, are the Rip Gods buying the dip so they can change their name to the Dip Gods? You know, that is not a bad idea. I think the next step for them might be, um, you know, they could spam the spammers, asking if these guys still have some of the junk products that got hoarded over the last year, like Illusions and Chronicles. And then when they say they do, the Rip Gods will just cackle and squeal with delight in unison. For the rest of eternity. In fact, you might want to stick around till the end of the episode. We might hear that. All right. Well, there you have it. I did the best I could to answer every question while still keeping this thing around the 40-minute mark. Maybe there was something I said today that resonated with you. Maybe you have some thoughts you want to add. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. This is very simple. Before you go to purchase or bid on an item, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, 
There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It's a simple way to support the show, but if multiple people do it, it really helps me out. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Hey, bro, do you still have any illusions or chronicles? Yeah, 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 yeah.